This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave Debo. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is it. Um, you know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. Coming up on today's program, Kelly Wofford is here. She's Erie County's relatively new director of health equity, looking at disparities and inequity. And she also has a lot of experience in mental health as the founder of the self-help group Front Seat Life. She's got much to talk about, and that's coming up in the second part of the program today. But first, all this past week, Tom Dinky has brought you four pretty remarkable pieces on extremism in Western New York. And for this program, he's produced them all into a mini documentary of sorts. It certainly discusses some of the issues of race and discrimination that we've been dealing with after the top shooting, and we have to bring it to you because of that right now as part of this program, too. Here, then, WBFO's Tom Dinky looking at extremism in western New York. Three hours after a white supremacist opened fire at black shoppers in the tops on Jefferson Avenue, law enforcement officials held a news conference. They noted a half dozen times that the alleged gunman was not from western New York. This is a community where people love each other. The shooter was not from this community. An individual who the mayor stated is not from this area and is from hours away from somebody outside of our community. He is from uh, a county here in New York State that is hours away. Those comments didn't sit particularly well with Buffalo State College professor of black politics, Dr. Anthony Neal. And though we, we, we talk about the unity of Buffalo, those who are honest know that Buffalo has problems or West New York has problems. So it seems like it was a way to try to straight those issues. Law enforcement has given no indication the gunman had ties to any organized group, whether in Western New York or elsewhere. But some observers say the activities of the local far right are still worth monitoring. Buffalo attorney and activist Heidi Jones has been researching the local far right for the last few years. She says their rhetoric, whether it be online or at demonstrations, is not far off from the racist replacement theory espoused by the alleged tops gunman. We do recognize how their rhetoric and their actions contribute to the overall dehumanization process in which it becomes acceptable to reference the Great Replacement Theory, and then act on it. And those who study politics, like University at Buffalo political science professor Jacob Nyheisel, say there is indeed significant overlap between white supremacy and right-wing extremism. There are some that will go right up to the line until they start believing in racist conspiracy theories and then back off a little bit. And then there are others who embrace all of it. Um, but yes, there, there's a significant amount of overlap between what you would think of as, as right-wing extremism and you know, white nationalism or, or racial extremists. There's 
importantly, overt white supremacy in western New York. The Southern Poverty Law Center is currently tracking three hate groups in the region, including the Lockport White Nationalist Group, founded by Carl Hand, who died in April. But hate groups are increasingly becoming, uh, you know, a kind of a bad measure for what is happening in the country relative to extremism. Southern Poverty Law investigative reporter Michael Addison Hayden says the number of hate groups in the U.S. is declining. At the same time, there's been an uptick in extremist rhetoric. The reason? The hate is often happening online. You know, if Western New York has a problem, it's 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 online. And hate groups aren't the only indicator of extremism. Southern Poverty Law also tracks nearly 500 anti-government groups, described as hard right, anti-democratic, and having a belief that an illegitimate government of leftists are seeking a new world order. Five are in Western New York. You know, the, the type of activity you're talking about are people who put, um, take the, the idea of patriotism um, and turn it into, um, you know, it really turn it into uh, a thing that galvanizes aggression. Then there's January 6th. <laughs> Six Erie County residents were charged in the storming of the Capitol. That's tied for the sixth most of any county in the nation, according to a George Washington University database. And January 6th does indeed link to white nationalism, Nye Heisel says, both because of literal white nationalist presence there and the fact many election fraud conspiracy theories centered around undocumented immigrants and urban centers where many black people live. I think if you ask somebody who did believe that there was fraud surrounding the, the election, I think that, you know, some of them would, would refuse to cast that in racial terms, and there are others who would absolutely embrace that idea. And so I think, again, there's diversity of thought, but there are linkages. As for why Western New York has right-wing extremism, Nyheisel says it could be as simple as the fact New York is a blue state. He points to University of Wisconsin professor Catherine Kramer's book, The, the Politics of Rural Resentment. Resentment. The idea that, you know, you're in a state where you're faced with a lot of liberal policies and things that you might not necessarily agree with, but you yourself are in a very different kind of environment, and that fosters a very different kind of thinking. It doesn't always end up in extremism, but it fosters a very different um, understanding of the political world. Jones thinks it can be tied directly to the segregated nature of Buffalo. 2010 census data shows Buffalo is the sixth most segregated city in the nation. Yeah, I think that, that our deep segregation impacts these right-wing movements, and because it's so much easier to other people that you literally don't interact with, but they're just right there. Neil, the Buffalo State professor, says as a black man, he's felt uneasy seeing trucks with Confederate flags riding around Western New York. To me, that signals that there's something present, even though if it hasn't truly manifested itself, that there is a sentiment in this area for uh, maybe replacement theory and, and those other type of issues that child detriment, we sweep them on the carpet and don't address it, but I would say it's definitely a sentiment that's present in this area. As President Biden spoke inside Buffalo's Delavan Grider Community Center last month to honor the victims of the top shooting, dozens gathered on the sidewalk across the street. One of them was Pete Harding. In 2020, the Cheektowaga man could be found getting into shouting matches with Black Lives Matter protesters or leading COVID lockdown demonstrations. Then images surfaced of him entering the Capitol building on January 6th and attempting to set ablaze media equipment. Here was his Facebook Live the day afterward. If we can take the Capitol building, 
There is nothing we can't accomplish. His charges are still pending. Outside Biden's speech, Harding was holding a large white flag with a red cross and a blue square. The Christian flag dates back to the early 20th century. But Jones, a Buffalo attorney researching the far right, says the flag now often symbolizes Christian nationalism. The only, the only people who count are Christian, white Christians. Harding's attorney, Jason DePasquale, says the flag was only meant to show solidarity with the tops victims. He says Harding got it from his pastor, although he declined to identify the church. Jones says the Christian flag is one example of how local far-right extremism gets disguised as Christianity and patriotism, especially by anti-government groups, characterized by the Southern Poverty Law Center as hard right and believing that an illegitimate government of leftists are trying to bring about a new world order. It's time to learn about everything that's going on in your community according to the Constitution. Now, Coalition Radio. One of Western New York's five anti-government groups is the Constitutional Coalition of New York State, which holds a weekly radio show on WEBR. They've held anti-mask protests and recently supported school board candidates who oppose vaccine mandates and critical race theory. Now this is Nancy Orticelli. Nancy Orticelli of West Seneca is the coalition's president. She denies their far-right label, saying they advocate for every legal American citizen, regardless of race, and that their members aren't just conservatives. Probably the only group of people that we do not have in our organization are uh, socialists because they don't like us. Orticelli says she contemplated not doing a show the Monday after the shooting after receiving online criticism accusing her and the coalition of so, using dangerous you know, rhetoric. Standing up for the rights and freedoms for all and now I want every people group to be removed except the white people. I, I don't know where that came from and how that's being attributed to me. The coalition's first show after the shooting denounced racism and violence but also accused Democrats of pandering to people of color making racism seem worse than it really is and even wanting to legalize abortions up until one month after a child is born, a false right-wing conspiracy theory. And and people think that there's nothing wrong with that, and we are absolutely becoming like the, you know, back in the day during the um, the Aztecs and the Incas when they used to sacrifice people, yeah. and people just think this is normal. We asked Orticelli if she believes in another conspiracy theory. The replacement theory, espoused by the alleged tops gunman, says Democrats are systematically replacing white voters with people of color. So no, I don't believe in the replacement theory at all. Um, I don't know. I know what it's saying is it's saying to, to remove white people. I don't think... I don't think, I don't, I, at least I hope that's not what they're doing, but I have no tangible proof as to any of that, so I don't ascribe to that ideology. I do think there's a lot of pandering, but no, I don't believe in that. Jones calls the Constitutional Coalition a gateway to more extremist thinking. You start showing up at, at Constitutional Coalition events that, that gets you introduced to uh, Watchmen. The New York Watchmen have provided security at events for the Coalition and other related groups. Started in response to 2020 racial justice protests, they're considered an anti-government militia by Southern Poverty Law and have had affiliations with the Proud Boys, a hate group whose leaders have been charged with sedition for January 6th. <laughs> 
uniformed watchmen clashed with counter demonstrators at Niagara Square in December 2020, something founder Charles Poline talked about at length in his Watchmen podcast. He got his head cracked. Antifa left their blood on the sidewalk that afternoon. Got a little bump on the noggin. Yep, and, and you know, now they're going to think twice. I mean, they better think twice. And while the Watchmen claim they didn't start the fight, they did celebrate the violence after the fact. He wasn't a Watchman. He's from a, another patriotic group that we will not identify, but he was the one who put that boot to the, to the Antifa on the ground. <laughs> not saying that I feel bad for him at all, but... But um, had that been a watchman, we'd probably had a talk with him, right, Brett? Yes, of course. Okay. Of course. Okay. <laughs> In a Facebook post, Pauline, a former police officer, reacted to the top shooting by saying, quoting now, black neighborhood, white suspect in custody, buckle your chin straps. Pauline didn't respond to an interview request, but in another Facebook post about extremism allegations against him, says he's, in his words, nothing more than a harmless patriot. Orticelli's husband, Nicholas, has been photographed wearing a New York Watchman uniform, but she denies that he's a member. Wearing what they had with their merch, I guess, didn't mean you were a member. Other local anti-government groups include the Marching Patriots, whose members were in D.C. on January 6th. Harding was wearing a Marching Patriots hoodie when he entered the Capitol. While there's plenty of overlap between local far-right groups, they don't necessarily all get along. Orticelli says there's no love lost between her and Harding. After January 6th, her coalition put out a statement that he was no longer welcome. Other groups went even further, saying none of their members could associate with him at all. It did kind of cause a little bit of a division with some patriots. And Orticelli says, although Harding may have good intentions, she doesn't agree with his decision to visit the neighborhood surrounding tops. Sometimes you need to just let people grieve and heal. And if you know that your presence is going to cause any kind of friction or any kind of um, upsetting people going through something so horrible, I think that you should have the sensitivity to just stay away for a little bit. Western New York native Michael Caputo has worked at all levels of politics. He was a Russian presidential advisor in the 1990s, managed Carl Paladino's run for governor in 2010, and served a tumultuous five months as the chief spokesperson of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services after being appointed by then-President Trump. And he has no problems defending the right. Donald Trump is not a racist, and those who support him are not racist, and I am certainly not a racist. In September 2020, while still working for the Trump administration, he made a Facebook Live video outside his East Aurora home. He went on a conspiratorial rant. He accused CDC scientists of sedition and predicted an armed insurrection from the left following the 2020 election. But if you carry guns, buy ammunition, ladies and gentlemen, because it's going to be hard to get. Caputo also gave his viewers another piece of advice. I urge you, to, if you're in Buffalo or anywhere in New York, I urge you to look up the New York Watchmen. The Southern Poverty Law Center calls the New York Watchmen an anti-government militia that has advocated for violence. Members have celebrated their violent clashes with left-leaning counter-demonstrators. Caputo, who went on medical leave for cancer shortly afterward and now lives in Florida, says he regrets making the video, but doesn't regret endorsing the Watchmen. He's longtime friends with the Watchmen's founder, Charles Pauline. Uh, but am I a member of the Watchmen? No. 
Have I ever attended a Watchmen event? No. Do I have any idea what the Watchmen are up to? I don't. But I wouldn't. I live in Florida. Still, others say, especially in wake of last month's white supremacist shooting at Topps Market, it's concerning that mainstream political figures are associating with far-right groups. It sends the message that they are legitimate players in our political system. That's Jones, the Buffalo attorney researching the local far-right. And when we have anti-democratic players in a democratic system, that creates a lot of um, tension and it disrupts our processes. New York State Assembly Majority Leader Crystal People Stokes, a Buffalo Democrat, even went so far as to liken it to the days of the Ku Klux Klan disguising themselves under white hoods. And I think we're back into that same situation again. I think that there are public servants who, you know, dwell in this kind of hate, and we don't know who they are. People Stokes says she's particularly concerned about the Watchmen. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, some people who we know very well are members, are members of that little club. Southern Poverty Law says the Watchmen have tried to recruit law enforcement into their ranks. Here's Pauline, a former police officer, on a podcast appearance in 2020. You know, we take the military guys and former police officers, and we've got special forces veterans. We've got several black belts in our group. Nice. We've got MMA fighters. We've got championship <sighs> boxers. So we're not just some ragtag bunch of guys out there that don't know what we're doing. Then Erie County Controller Stefan Mahailu thanked the watchman for protecting him during a skirmish at Niagara Square in 2020. Mahailu did not respond to an interview request. And State Assemblyman David DiPietro has also had watchmen attend several of his events. DiPietro also did not answer an interview request. I never even heard of a watchman. One political figure who did respond was Carl Palladino. Uniformed watchmen attended a 2020 New Year's Eve party at a Buffalo River property owned by Paladino's Ellicott Development. While January 6th defendant Pete Harding, identifying himself as a watchman, said in a November 2020 Facebook video that Paladino rented buses for him and others to attend a rally in Albany. Pauline, the New York Watchman's founder, has already voiced his support on social media for Paladino's run for Congress. But Paladino says he has no relationship to the New York Watchman and that he never rented buses. As for People Stokes' criticism of him, Paladino says the black majority leader is the one who's actually racist. I wouldn't call her a majority leader. I'd call her a waste of time. A very racist, very racist waste of time. People Stokes says it's about more than just affiliations with far-right groups. She points to Paladino's past racist remarks, comparing then-First Lady Michelle Obama with a gorilla. People Stokes also points to then-Erie County Sheriff Tim Howard speaking in uniform at a rally where Confederate flags were flown and white supremacist literature was distributed. She says these kinds of things make people feel comfortable with hate. I'm never going to be comfortable with that. And so I, as a legislator, I, I don't believe that there's a way that we can legislate morality. I think we can keep working on people's consciousness to help raise it up, but you can't legislate consciousness. As for Caputo, he says he was hurt like many Western New Yorkers to learn about the top shooting, but he rejects the criticism directed at him and others. But the idea that somehow or another a crazy man from the Pennsylvania border rode in a car for hundreds of miles in order to shoot up a supermarket in Buffalo was inspired by me or any of my friends, that's ridiculous. <laughs> 
He says his left-leaning critics are the real extremists, noting he and his family have received death threats. They're just completely now absolutely obsessed with me, Stefan Mahailu, Carl Palladino, and others who are just more, we're, we're more mainstream. We're more part of the Buffalo, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of center, and and they're not. Bringing up that parts of the Democratic Party used to be pro-slavery, a lot's changed since then. He says Democrats now weaponize charges of racism against white people. So just as they deny the basic humanity of African Americans for more than a century, these same people, they now do the same thing to white Republicans to try to secure votes. As for the replacement theory espoused by the alleged tops gunman, which a recent Southern Poverty Law Center poll found nearly seven in 10 Republicans believe, Caputo says he doesn't know much about it. But just because the socialist left calls it a conspiracy theory doesn't make it a conspiracy theory. Um, I, I don't know if I believe it or not. I don't know enough about it to say I do. But I do know whenever I hear conspiracy theory coming out of the mouths of leftists, I immediately question whether it's a theory at all. On May 13th, Jones and her team of researchers looking into Western New York's far right had a meeting. To discuss what the changing lands, uh, threat landscape looks like. They determined that violence would likely not come from one of the groups they've been looking into, but rather from individuals inspired by the rhetoric of those groups or others like them. It's a theory called stochastic terrorism. Where you have influential leaders saying um, things that are dehumanizing and giving space for people to act on that, on those concepts. Jones's group decided they should host some Stop the Bleed courses and encourage people to carry first aid kits. The next day, the shooting at Topps Market happened. The white supremacist alleged gunman wrote he was inspired by the racist replacement theory that's become rather mainstream. I was deeply angry that this happened here, but also that all of the work I've been doing hasn't made an impact. So what can be done to curb extremism? The answers aren't simple. And how there's a feeding frenzy on social media platforms where hate festers more hate. Governor Kathy Hochul has signed legislation requiring social media companies to report how they're responding to hate speech on their platforms, as well as creating a task force to look at what role the companies play in promoting violent extremism. I think that this is something that's particularly hard to deal with legislatively. I really do. Nye Heisel, um, the University at Buffalo professor, isn't sure much can be done to stop hate speech online. He knows the Constitution makes it difficult to criminalize. And, and even in a state like New York that has somewhat stronger um, provisions to, to go after hate speech, it's still not going to, to stop the proliferation of kinds of things like, like we've seen. The state has been criticized for its dormant domestic terrorism task force, created in 2020 and met for the very first time last week. The meeting was held virtually, but people Stokes had hoped it would take place in western New York. I think it sends a very strong message to sound there, start there, because this is where they sent they, what they made their first target. At the federal level, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act passed the Democrat-controlled House last month before stalling in the divided Senate. Neil, the Buffalo State College professor, says he was disappointed his congressman, Chris Jacobs, and other Republicans voted down the bill. The uh, Republican mantra 
is that we are against it, but uh, we don't want to pass that policy and end up doing nothing in the process. A bipartisan gun control package is currently in the works. Neil says that's a start. Because when you come at it from white supremacy extremism, from foreign terrorism, domestic terrorism, the common denominator is access to military-style weapons that are efficient killing, killing machines to... Uh, destroy uh, human lives and human bodies. Hayden, the Southern Poverty Law investigative reporter, says communities must call out hatred when they see it, but that it's also crucial not to automatically label those with different political views as extremists. We need to start building uh, real communities um, everywhere in this country in order to, to get past whatever this horrible stage we're in of division. And I mean, I think that means, um, you know, being able to tolerate uh, people who have different beliefs, but draw the line hard on, on explicit hatred of any kind. Orticelli, the president of the Constitutional Coalition, says she'd welcome a face-to-face -face discussion with her critics, like Jones. And maybe we could find some kind of common ground just to be human beings on and to be decent and to work for the betterment of the people. We're not going to agree on everything. We have completely different beliefs and, and ideologies, but I'm sure there's some things that we could agree on. Jones says she and her team have considered speaking directly to far-right leaders like Orticelli. They've decided they'd rather focus on helping Orticelli's potential radio listeners recognize extremism and that's a better use of the energy the Department of Justice has charged the alleged Topps gunman with numerous federal hate crime charges. Speaking in Buffalo last week, FBI officials say they're looking into anyone who may have communicated with the gunman before the shooting. Tom Dinky, WBFO News. And Tom is here now to talk a little bit about that piece. Tom, amazing work. How long did it take you to pull all that together? I think it was just about a month. Um, I think it really started after that kind of initial first week or so after the shooting, once we had some time to kind of think more more big picture about certain elements after we had kind of covered the initial incident, starting to look ahead at follow-ups. Um, so yeah, just about a month. And I think the uh, inspiration was probably what you outlined in the very first piece, yep. the idea that the day of the shooting, Byron Brown, Police Commissioner Joseph Grimalia, several many people were trying to say, hey, he's not from here. Right. Racism, therefore, isn't here. The counter-argument is, yes, it's not a Buffalo problem alone, but Buffalo has a problem. Right. Um, and, and you could understand where those officials were coming from, you know, just a couple hours after the shooting, wanting to calm people, wanting to bring some sense of unity. Um, it it kind of made sense in that moment, maybe, to emphasize that the shooter was not from Western New York. Um, but I think it did rub some people the wrong way. I heard that reporting out in the community. I certainly saw that sentiment online that, yes, the shooter wasn't from here, but that certainly doesn't mean that there isn't white supremacy, that there isn't right-wing extremism. And as we talk about in the piece, um, we, we do have several what the Southern Poverty Law Center refers to as anti-government groups, um, hard-right groups that a lot of times do overlap with the traditional hate groups. And you're okay calling them extremists. Tell me why. There are people way more qualified than me to talk about the definition of extremism, but as journalists, when we don't know something, we, we ask the people who do know. And talking with the Southern Poverty Law Center, their definition, rough definition of 
of extremism is someone who has an ideology that goes beyond the normal political discourse. Uh, it is extreme in the sense that it would have to be accomplished by extreme means, whether that's violence or uh, displacing people or, or just disruptions to society. Was there something in there that you just feel you have to underline that to you was the most amazing glistening nugget mm -hmm. out of it all? Yeah, um, there's a lot, but I think what has stuck with me was when I got the chance to ask a couple of the far-right leaders whether or not they believe in the Great Replacement Theory that the Topps gunmen talked about online. The answers, I, I don't know that they were surprising, but it, it was notable to me that the answer was no, but. I, I think that was sort of telling that even in a moment where you would think you would want to present, no, absolutely, I don't believe that, they still couldn't do that. They still needed to couch it with, maybe it's true. And what did you have to leave on the proverbial cutting room floor? I, I think one element, and it comes through in the piece a little bit, it was interesting to me how much these groups put out onto the internet, how, for lack of a better word, transparent they are about the overlap they have with other groups, how they are organized. The New York Watchmen, for example, this didn't make it into the piece, but on one podcast episode, their founder, Charles Poline, talked about what you need to do to be become a member of the New York Watchmen. It was just kind of telling to me that these groups are very transparent in how they operate and who, who they overlap with. Talk a little bit about the reaction that you've had to the piece, both good and bad. Yeah, um, it, it's been interesting because the first initial wave of it certainly was very positive. Um, I, I had a lot of sentiment that, hey, we needed this reporting in Western New York. We, we haven't gotten enough of it. And to be clear, I'm certainly not the first person to, to write about some of these figures, write about some of these issues. Um, I know the Investigative Post has been talking about far-right groups in the area since at least January 6th. I think the Buffalo News earlier this month had a story talking about some of these similar issues. And, uh, of course, Madison Carter, the former uh, Channel 7 news reporter, certainly did a lot of reporting about racism. But there was kind of a sentiment out there that we're maybe not looking at these groups enough. So that was kind of the first wave of reaction. Interestingly enough, the piece that got the most pushback was when I started started talking about the political figures, Michael Caputo, Stefan Mihailu, Carl Palladino. That's the piece that online started getting pushback about. I don't know if that's an indication that those leaders more have people willing to defend them, because it was just interesting that those people didn't come out for the first two pieces. It was only once I actually mentioned the political figures that they, they really wanted to come after it. And let's be plain, for those who might just be joining us, didn't necessarily hear the entire scope of the documentary. Your report found that there are, can we call it, connections between those politicians, political operatives, and groups like the Watchmen, extremist groups, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center? I would definitely think that's fair to say. Um, in the case of Michael Caputo, who's a Western New York native who worked in the Trump administration, I mean, he's open about the fact that he's longtime friends with the Watchmen's founder. Um, as we talk about in the series, he did a Facebook Live video while he was working in the Trump administration in which he told people to look up the New York Watchmen. Um, so a lot of these ties, I, I think it is fair to just flat out call them connections. All right. And let's look at uh, some of the other criticism, because I, I've seen some emails come in here and I want to read one of them to sure. you. I also want to talk about the idea of right wing extremism and left wing extremism. Yeah. Perhaps the, the, the best way to do it. We, we last week got an email from a man in Lancaster. I don't know if he gave us permission to use his name. So 
I won't. But uh, the email reads like this. Message for Tom Dinky. Your first two articles were fair and informative. I hope you also comment on the progressive and liberal links to the far left radicals like those who ransacked and firebombed Compass Care Counseling Center. Compass Care Counseling Center is a uh, crisis pregnancy center that uh, had some graffiti on it and some firebombing or at least some arson about a week or so ago. Uh, the graffiti suggested a connection to a group called Jane's Revenge. They're a group that basically works to protect abortion rights and has in the past taken action against anti-abortion groups. Why not call them left extremists? Why the focus that you chose on far-right extremists? Are there examples of left extremists that you think measure up to the same level of what you did in your reports? Yeah, well, first I'll say that, uh, as we talked about, the story was put together in a month, and it certainly was influenced and, and totally in the wake of the top shooting, which was committed by a white supremacist. And the experts will tell you, white supremacy overlaps with right-wing extremism, not left-wing extremism. So for that reason, yes, we just looked at right-wing extremism. Um, you know, there is some data out there that shows that, of course, everyone wants to point to the, the, the 2020 racial justice protests. Certainly, there was some property damage. Um, I think there are some estimates as much as $2 billion. At the same time, though, there's a lot of data out there that shows that extremist killings are predominantly coming coming from the right. I think the Anti-Defamation League has some statistics that over the last decade of the 400 plus extremist murders in the U.S., 75 percent came from right wing extremists and only about 4 percent came from left wing extremists. Um, and certainly I'm open to looking at left wing extremism. I will say at least my sense of it right now is that the far left groups operate a little differently from the local far right groups. They are not uh, making T-shirts with their group names. Uh, they are not uh, coming out as visibly as, say, the New York Watchmen are. And on top of that, as far as political ties, um, I, I haven't seen examples of mainstream Democrat politicians associating themselves with what you would consider to be a far left extremist group. If somebody has evidence of that and, and wants to bring it to me, we'll certainly look into it. And, and we're certainly open to, to doing a follow up down the line. But we want it to be a follow up to the top shooting. I like the way you said it, too, that they don't necessarily have T-shirts. Mm -hmm. the, the left groups could be out there. Oh, sure. And the left could be perhaps a collection of activists, mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily have a radio show. They don't necessarily yes. have T-shirts or jackets. They're not mobilized in groups. Is that fair to say? I think that is. And, and it goes back to what I said before, what stuck out to me that a lot of these far right groups are so transparent putting themselves out there on the Internet, whether it's a radio show, a podcast, a Facebook group. Um, they're really visible in that way that they really detail their operations and who they're working with. All right, let's take off a couple of other criticisms that have come in in the past week. Isn't the top's gunman actually far left because he's an eco-fascist and didn't like Fox News? I've asked about that. The answer I got from experts is that that's basically disinformation, that a lot of times when you have extremist killings that do come from the right wing, it's kind of a tactic 
from some on the right to label it as something else. And they say that this is an example of that, that eco-fascism actually is very much aligned with white supremacy. Um, there are neo-Nazis and anti-immigration groups that have kind of made similar arguments that immigrants are essentially dirtying the planet and contributing to climate change, and this is a reason we shouldn't have them. So I, I don't know if it's... Uh, I don't know if it's true that eco-fascism could be called a left-wing ideal. One more that came in. Sure. Uh, the alleged shooter espoused this replacement theory. Your reporting didn't have any examples saying that these far-right extremist groups embrace that same philosophy. The link between the two, sure. they would argue, is not as strong as, as your reporting would maybe indicate. Hmm. Certainly, that that's fair. Um, I, I, I will say that there were only so many radio shows and podcasts of these groups that I could listen to in the amount of time we had. Um, but I, I think it is telling that when I had the chance to ask these groups directly whether or not they believe in the Great Replacement Theory, as I said before, their answers were no, but um, it, they didn't completely disavow it. Um, in the case of Nancy Orticelli, who's the president of one of Western New York's anti-government groups, she told me that she absolutely doesn't believe it, but at the same time said, well, at least I hope that's not what they're doing, but I have no proof of of that. When I posed that question to Michael Caputo, his answer was that he didn't know enough about it to know whether he believed in it. And he also said that just because the left calls something a conspiracy theory doesn't make it a conspiracy theory. And I know in the Twitterverse, there has been a lot of discussion about one of the people that you cited in your story, local attorney Heidi Jones. You called her activist because I think that's a fair description mm -hmm. of her. But um, why is she admittedly a left activist um, qualified to talk about this. Does that not, uh, devil's advocate here, does that not automatically um, hint at a bias? Sure. I, I think with Heidi, she's done the research. Um, she has been documenting these groups and, you know, has receipts, so to say, uh, I think uh, what the kids would say, <laughs> um, that you know she has been watching these groups' rhetoric and their activity um, and has documented it pretty solidly. You know, the thing is, we can talk to national experts like the Southern Poverty Law Center, and we did talk to them and include them in the story. They can't quite give us the analysis of these local groups as much as someone who actually lives here in Western New York. Where does this go from here? What do you see coming from this. Even whether that was your intent or not, what is the long-term implications of your reporting here? Yeah, well, the, the last part of the series, I think, tries to touch on that topic a little bit. Uh, the, the topic of the, the, the final part of the series was how to combat extremism. Um, I think that's a goal that everybody wants. I would think even figures on Western York's local far right would tell you that extremism needs to come down in this country and they want to work towards that. I don't know that my story is necessarily going to do that, but I think putting these things out there and letting people decide certainly doesn't doesn't hurt. You know, maybe having a discussion, identifying groups that might be problematic in some people's eyes, if there's more information about them out there, maybe that helps. And it's almost a little trite. I, I know a lot of people have said it since, but um, Supreme Court Justice, I think it was Louis Brandeis said, mm -hmm. sunlight is the best disinfectant. The idea that by exposing light on a problem, you're at least perhaps taking a step towards solving it. 
Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that's going back to the start of the series when we talked about how officials really wanted to stress that the Topps gunman wasn't from Western New York. A lot of people felt like that was kind of trying to cover up the more extremist elements that we have in this community. Um, certainly, if, if nobody's paying attention to these groups, nobody's writing about their activities, they're going to grow. I think writing about these groups and just writing about their activities and letting people decide whether or not they're justified in their rhetoric or activities, but certainly can't hurt putting that information out there. Tom, thanks for this and thanks so much for your work. Thank you, Dave. SWBFO reporter Tom Dinky, of course. Up next, Bridget Jaipal Valenza with Kelly Marie Wofford. She is Erie County's Director of Health Equity. She's been involved in a lot of mental health issues. Much more discussion to come. This is Buffalo What's Next. Stay with us. Funding for the WBFO's News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York. Watch the WNED PBS original production, Daredevils of Niagara Falls. I think part of the lure of Niagara was that it was understood to be a very dangerous place. A daredevil is somebody who goes out and does a daring thing. Maybe they make it and maybe they don't. Daredevils of Niagara Falls, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is Bridget Jaipal Valenza, and for the rest of the program today, we will be talking about health disparities, uh, the difference in care, and the difference in outcomes for people of color. Kelly Marie Wolford is here. She is Erie County's relatively new Director of Health Equity. It's a new position to work on these issues specifically. Um, she's an advocate. She is an organizer, a teacher, and a storyteller. Kelly, thank you for joining us today. Um, let's start with your podcast oh. for a moment. Okay. Um, front Seat Life. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how that came about and you know what you talk about on the on your podcast so I am first of all thank you for having me here Absolutely. Um, I am the survivor of childhood sexual assault and sexual abuse uh, and I grew up and ended up living with and I still live with um, several mental health disorders um, borderline personality disorder depression and anxiety um, front seat life was born out of the need to have and hold space for people like me. Um, in 2013, I attempted suicide and woke up in the hospital, went through uh, two weeks of inpatient hospitalization and began looking for resources because I made a promise to myself that I would never be back in that place again, that, that mental space, not physical space, but the mental space again, mm -hmm. and that I would do whatever it was in my power to ensure that I would not return there. 
but the resources were limited. I couldn't find a comfortable space for me. You know, there were some workshops out there, some group work, but nothing um, really spoke to my situation. And so I created it because I knew that if I was going through something, this particular thing, someone else was. And Front Seat Life um, really allowed me to take all the pieces of my recovery and share that with other people. And so on the podcast, we talk about everything from um, eating and meditation. Um, We talk about racism and mental health. We talk about different types of disorders. Uh, We talk about what it means to take control of your life. And that's what a front seat life is. It's taking control of your life. We don't get to determine the weather. We don't get to determine the condition of the road, but we do determine how we drive and how we drive our life. So that really is is what a front seat life is. So you're either in the driver's seat or you have the aux cord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't want to be in the back. You yeah. know, there's, there's, it's cramped back there. Absolutely. No space. Absolutely. It has been such a challenging time, such a difficult time. How how are you coping with everything that has gone on in the last month and a half? Um, so it's been a ride. Um, it initially I was working uh, 12 to 13 hour days for the first two weeks after the massacre. Um, because the county stood up a healing hub and food distribution center. And so it required us to be there to to make sure that the needs of the community um, were being met. So I really didn't have time to process. Um, One of my gifts, uh, I try and find the positive in in everything. And so with a a condition like borderline personality disorder, there's a lot of negatives, but I have this great ability to compartmentalize and handle things later. Mm. What I've learned is I still have to handle them later, right? right? I can put them aside. I can box them away and just ignore the fact that they're there, but I can't continue to do that. Um, so initially that's what I did. I compartmentalized everything. I knew I had to show up for the people. Once, um, we were able to, and and one, I had one day off and the one day I was anxious because I wasn't able to be there. I had been there every day since Sunday and they finally, um, our county executive was like, Kelly, you, you can't be here every day. Right. You know, you have to take time. And so um, I did take a day and it was probably my most anxious day because I wasn't involved because I couldn't help anyone. And it left me alone with my emotions and feelings that I wasn't prepared to deal with because I knew it would take me more than a day to mm. deal with them. And so over time, I've been able to unpack. I've been able to process um, and, and, and really um, go through this journey, for lack of a better word, of understanding my blackness and where I fit in America. You know, we are um, here. And I mean, I was born and raised here. I am American, but this is not my home. It's not my home because I can't even go to a grocery store on a weekend to buy some groceries, right? We're not wanted here. We're not welcome here. And people make sure that we don't forget that. I think 
I mean, that's that's that part. That's the part right there that mm-hmm. people don't let us forget. Mm-hmm. That's the part that strikes the fear mm-hmm. um, and goes to the core of not feeling safe right anywhere right um, we've been hearing that there are people in the neighborhood who still won't drive past that section of Jefferson Avenue they will not go grocery shopping you know they need to instacart or, or have someone else um, run their errands for them uh, what have you seen in the neighborhood? How are they doing? Everyone is in a different space, in a different place, right? People grieve differently. People uh, recover and heal differently. And so everyone is in a different space, in a different place. One of the things that I try and, and educate and remind people about is that being black and black folks are not a monolith. You cannot take a one-size-fits-all approach to how we handle recovery and healing from the massacre. There are people that will never drive by or go into that tops ever again, period. And we have to meet them where they are. There are others that are anxious for the store to open back up. We need to meet them where they are. There are people that, and, and I'm one of them, that, you know, questions, again, why was that the only grocery store, right? Um, no other neighborhood like that do you go in, and if, if Price Wright shuts down on Elmwood, there's tops on Niagara, right? If um, tops on um, Elmwood shuts down, there's Aldi's on Elmwood, right? So there are, I mean, and I don't want to even get into, you know, uh, the uh, Bailey, Maple, Niagara Falls area where every time you turn around, you're touching a store. Yeah. And so the question is why, and and that is what I think the true question is, yes, we need to deal with um, healing and address where people are, but we can't forget the overall fight. And that is, why was that the only grocery store serving this community? That is important because we can often lose focus and people will think and say job well done once that tops reopens job not well done right because the people still only have one resource that is a dangerous place to live in if you only have one resource but that is all that the community has unless you have the means like me I have the means to go to any store that I, I want to most people don't have that option so where do we meet them at right, right? Um, people are traumatized um, and this was racialized trauma so it's not just trauma it, it adds another layer to it when you consider the race factor and the reason that this group of people died and were shot and were traumatized and injured was because they're black. It wasn't because they were from Buffalo. They could have gone anywhere. I'm saying they, the 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 uh, person that perpetrated this crime. Um, 
could have went to a yoga studio, right? If it was just people, if this was just a Buffalo thing, but it was not. This is very much a black issue and that makes people uncomfortable, but we have to have the conversations. And as long as we continue to not have the conversations, we leave ourselves open for similar acts to occur. Kelly Marie Wolford is our guest today. She is Erie County's Director of Health Equity. Um, talk to me about comfortable conversations and non-comfortable conversations. We were, were talking a little bit about this before we, we got on the air. So, you know, th there is no such thing as a comfortable conversation when it comes to this topic of um, race, of healing, of reconciliation, of um, dealing with trauma. Someone is going to be uncomfortable. Both, one, you know, someone in that conversation is going to be uncomfortable. And so you have to look at it from the perspective of the greater good. Which discomfort is least important, for, for lack of a better uh, phrase, because we're talking about life and death here. So is it, you know, we don't have the conversation because someone is uncomfortable and therefore um, people are, are still dying, right? Because that's really, that's, that's the, in, in essence, what it is. Many people do not want to have the conversation because they're uncomfortable. But by not having these uncomfortable conversations, people are dying. Or we can flip it around and, you know, allow them to learn to be uncomfortable and deal with the discomfort because it's not killing you. Exactly. It isn't a life or death situation. Right. Nobody's really going to... The outcomes certainly are different. Right. right. And the stakes are, are different mm -hmm. uh, for people of color. Um, it's tiring. Exhausting. There are conversations that happen repeatedly, and even though it is exhausting, we still have those conversations mm -hmm. again. Why? Because if you stop having the conversations, the conversations cease to occur. And, um, you know, no victim is required or asked to help their perpetrator heal except for black folks and our indigenous brothers and sisters. We, and, and with that, there are groups of us within these two groups that are um, especially positioned and gifted, I'll even say, with the ability to have these conversations repeatedly because someone has to speak up. Not everybody is in a place where they can, and if they're not in a place where they can, then they shouldn't, right? But uh, someone has to do the educating. Someone has to have those tough conversations. Someone has to be that go-between and, and be that mediator. And those people we need to take care of. You know, we need to, to, to really... Um, 
understand that people that are in positions like these, like ours, um, we still have to deal with our blackness. We still have to deal with being black in America. We still have to um, unpack everything. But at the same time, we still have to show up. And that showing up uh, is a choice. Right. It's that, a choice. That you, we need to make. Right. But it, it doesn't negate the the other pieces. It, it, you, you, we bring our whole selves to work, into this work, and it doesn't negate the fact that we are still black, black women in this conversation um, that are, are doing the work. The county has made this new office. Um, you know, it's got a fantastic title, Overall Health Equity um, and Health Disparities. What does that mean? What does health equity mean and what does that look like? So health equity, having health equity, um, means that everyone, regardless of where they live, work, play, pray, learn, has the same opportunity to have good health. Um, A quick example, um, I am a black woman born in Buffalo, New York. I had my first child at 18. Um, I had my second child at 20. Um, I am overweight. I uh, have a master's degree. Um, I was married and am now divorced. And I will live 8 to 12 years less than my white counterpart that has the exact same life that I have. So when all things are made equal, if you compare the life of a black person with the life of a white person here in Buffalo, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of education, they will still live fewer years than their white counterparts. And there's reasons for that. Those are called the social determinants of health, and they are all of the things that make us healthy. People generally think of health equity as access to health care, or they think of health as being able to go to the doctor. But access to health care and you know, going to the doctor, being able to do those annual physicals and things like that, make up only 20 to 30 percent of our health. The rest of our health is made up of all these other factors. So um, your built environment, you know, your home, your community, the sidewalks, uh, your education, where you went to school, um, uh, transportation issues. Can you get around your community? It's made up of all of these um, pieces, small pieces. And health behaviors is another piece of that. And, and that's the other area that people generally want to focus on. You know, whether or not you smoke, whether or not you're eating fresh fruits and vegetables and and things like that. And so all of these pieces make up a person's whole health. Our job in our office is here to um, work to ensure that all people, no matter, again, where they live, work, play, uh, no matter where they were born, no matter, you know, what their, their outcomes in life are, have the same opportunity at good health. 
The county has a number of programs. I know that I believe you are still at Jefferson Avenue in some capacity. Is that correct? There is um, counseling and, and grief um, sessions uh, have ended at Jefferson site and they are now located at the Resource Council at 347 East or East Ferry. There is still uh, food distribution on Fridays. Mm-hmm. So we kept the food distribution on Fridays for the community to have more than one spot that people can go to in order to uh, get the nutrition and sustenance that they need. And I know that there are some resources online that are available. Can you tell me just a little bit about that? Sure. Um, They're available online and available for us to drop off to community organizations, faith-based organizations, um, schools, uh, corner stores, wherever people are. The office created a newsletter, um, and that newsletter um, addresses issues and meets people where they are. So the first was on mental health, and the second we did a special edition on grief because we wanted people to be able to have what they needed at their fingertips and to be able to better understand what they were going through because everyone, especially in the black community, they're not going to go to a therapist. They're not going to ask for help. They're not going to say they need help, and they haven't learned um, and accepted that it's okay to not be okay. So this newsletter um, allows us to be able to reach as many people as possible, uh, and it's available, again, in print and electronic form. Wonderful. Kelly Marie Wilford, thank you so much for being here. We would love to have you back on to talk more about this. Um, We are committed to these discussions to confront the reasons why May 14th mass shooting occurred. That's our promise from WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown.